As Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, to these Christians in the city of Ephesus, he's in prison. And Paul is in prison because a Jewish mob that was angry over his preaching to the Gentiles, they came down from Caesarea and they pressured the authorities to arrest him for insurrection. And as was the right of Paul as a Roman citizen, he appealed himself to the emperor. And so now he's in Rome, sitting in a jail cell, awaiting trial. And from there, one of the things he does is writes this letter to the Ephesians. And here's a reminder of what Paul has said so far. He began in chapter 1 by praising God for graciously choosing himself and the other Ephesians for redemption and for adoption and then asking God to give them a greater understanding of his grace. And then in chapter 2, Paul paused his prayer to be a bit of an answer to his prayer by describing God's grace that freely came to the Ephesians, Jew and Gentile alike, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us this morning to chapter 3, where Paul picks back up his prayer only to pause it again, this time to encourage the Ephesians who were losing heart over his suffering in prison. He writes to encourage the Ephesians who were losing heart because of his suffering in prison. That purpose of this passage is made clear in the last verse. Verse 13, So, Paul writes, and that means in light of what he has just said in verses 1 through 12, So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Evidently, some of the Ephesians were Losing heart. That Greek word enkenkeo means discouraged. Some of the Ephesians were discouraged that Paul was suffering in prison. That word means to, to lose your motivation. It means to lose your passion. It means to lose your why for whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe some of the Ephesians felt guilty that Paul was imprisoned for preaching the gospel to Gentiles like them. Or maybe some of them were afraid that Paul's fate was going to be their fate. We can't be sure of the specifics, but we can be sure that Paul's suffering in prison was resulting in Ephesian discouragement. And so Paul pauses 
to preach to them what we will read today in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. But before we do, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, many of us know what it's like to be discouraged and to lose heart. We pray that you'd use your holy word by your Holy Spirit to encourage us us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find that text on page 918. In that introduction, I told you that Paul picks up his prayer again. His letter started with a prayer in chapter 1, and then he paused that prayer, and then he begins to pray again, and then pauses again, and I want to show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 1 with me. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then that's where he pauses, and he gives us verses 2 through 13. But look down at verse 14, and you'll see the same wording as verse 1, where Paul gets back to his prayer. Verse 14, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. The reason I'm showing you that is because whatever Paul says in verse 1 causes his mind to go in a different direction. Most of you know what that's like. You're intending to say something, and then at the beginning of saying that something, you say something that sends your mind in a totally different direction, and you pause And you have something else that you need to say, and then you come back to what you were originally saying. So this is what Paul is doing. This has not been edited in any way. This is exactly what Paul was writing. So he pauses. Let's read again what he says in verse 1, because that is what sends him in a different direction, And that is what he is going to unpack in the following verses, which were meant, remember, to encourage the Ephesians not to lose heart. So what did he say in verse 1? Again, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... There are many ways that Paul could describe himself, but here he uses this phrase. I am a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. There's two parts to that sentence, aren't there? First, Paul acknowledges the sovereignty of God. I wonder if you see that. Doesn't he acknowledge the sovereignty that is the total control over all things of God when, though he is 
literally, actually a prisoner of Rome. He's literally a prisoner of the emperor Nero. But he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. In other words, he's saying, I am Nero's prisoner by the will of Christ. Christ, he says, has me in this prison. What a thing to say. You might think, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? How could that be a good thing? When I think of good things in my life, and when I think of bad things in my life, when I think of good outcomes, when I think of bad outcomes, prison very clearly fits into one category and not the other. And yet Paul credits Christ with his imprisonment. And the second part of the sentence is, on behalf, I'm in prison, on behalf of you Gentiles, meaning the Christians in Ephesus. He says, it's because of you I'm in prison. And this very obviously is not a guilt trip. He's not saying, you know, it's your fault that I'm in here. When Paul says it's because of you that I'm in prison, he means that in a good way. So these are all kinds of things in this very first sentence that that don't make a lot of sense when you initially read them. Like, why are you giving credit to Jesus and that's a good thing that you're in prison? And now why are you saying that you're in prison because of us? It's our fault and you somehow mean that in a good way to encourage us. It makes us think deeply. Paul was called by God to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And so his imprisonment is proof of his obedience. I wouldn't be here if God had not called me to preach the gospel to people like you and if I hadn't been faithful to that call. One commentator writes, this was a matter of fact. What had led to Paul's arrest Imprisonment and successive trials was fanatical Jewish opposition to his mission to the Gentiles. So this opening statement of chapter 3 is what sets Paul off in another direction. He's looking around at the wall of that jail cell. Imagine being in Paul's shoes. And he's sitting in that jail cell, looking around at the walls, and I believe what keeps him from losing heart is remembering that he is there because the Lord Jesus Christ loved him enough to reveal himself to Paul 
and then to commission him to minister to others. And so now he elaborates on that. Right? That gets him thinking about the Lord Jesus revealing himself to Paul and then commissioning Paul to minister to the Gentiles. And so he elaborates that, and he does it in two parts. Part one, verses two through six, there is a mystery revealed to Paul. Part one, a mystery revealed to Paul. And then verse Part 2, verses 7 through 12, there is a ministry entrusted to Paul. So two parts, mystery and ministry. Let's begin with part 1. This is verses 2 through 6, and let's look at it together. And I'll read it. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul uses the word mystery three times, so we better know what it means. Because it does not mean what we might think it means, because when we use the word mystery in English, we mean something different than what was meant in this first century Greek. When we say mystery, we're usually referring to something that is unknown to us. It is a mystery. It is something that is obscure. It's something that is puzzling. If something is mysterious, we don't totally understand it. In Greek... A mystery is something that used to be known or unknown, but is now known. In Greek, a mystery is something that used to be unknown, but now it is known. So when Paul uses this word, and he uses it elsewhere, he means a formerly hidden truth that has become known by revelation from God. So it was a secret. It would have remained a secret if God had not revealed this truth to us, and he has. And that's what a mystery is. So which divine truth is Paul referring to here? Let's carefully read the verses again, beginning in verse 2. 
Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. There it is. That's how a mystery has come to be known. It's by revelation. As I have written briefly, I think Paul is there referring to chapter 2. He's already written about this mystery. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. At his, his, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is... Okay, here is the mystery Paul is talking about. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And if you weren't here last week, that's exactly what Paul was talking about and expounding on in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That is the mystery. And he summarizes it here that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that is, with the Jews, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, who was the Messiah, the Christ, the one who had been promised to the Jews, the one who had been promised to Israel, the gospel is that Jesus came and he lived he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead and he did that in the place of his people. He did that in the place of his people to reconcile them to God. Now for the Jews, and we studied this last week, they and they alone had always been his people. But they, and this is the mystery, this is the mystery that was now revealed, the formerly hidden truth that had now been revealed. The mystery is that God intended to save Jews and Gentiles. God intended to save people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. It's why and how, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. You read the entire Old Testament, and His people, God's people, are the nation of Israel. And even those who are outside that nation who wanted to become worshipers of the true God, had to integrate themselves into and become a part of the Jewish nation. But this mystery, this truth that was hidden in the whole Old Testament and now is revealed through these apostles like Paul and these New Testament prophets, is that God intends to save people from every tongue and every tribe and every Nations And the Apostle Paul, he was one of the very first Christians that God clearly revealed this mystery to. 
John Stott, in his commentary, wrote this. What neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the theocracy, the Jewish nation under God's rule, would be terminated and replaced by a new international community, the church, that this church would be the body of Christ organically united to him. And so what unites us as Christians is not our Jewish heritage. What unites us is our faith in Christ. And what makes us a son of Abraham is not that we are in the biological line of Abraham, but it is that we have the same faith in the same God that Abraham had. That's the mystery that Paul was revealing. And thank God for the Ephesians, because very few of them were Jews. And so Romans 4.16, Paul wrote there, That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all God's people, not only to the adherent of the law, that is the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's the mystery. And that is the first part of this passage. Paul remembers that God had revealed this mystery to him. What an honor, I'm sure, Paul thought. That the good news of Jesus Christ was for anybody and everybody. That's not all. These go together. There's a second part to this passage, and it's what Paul remembers next in verses 7 through 12, and that is that God had entrusted a ministry to him. So God did not reveal this mystery to Paul so that he would keep it to himself. God revealed this mystery to Paul so that he could now entrust this ministry to Paul, so that he could go to every tongue and tribe and nation with the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ and say to all, come to Christ. So verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. In verse 8, look back. Paul says, though I am the very least of the saints. Paul talked like that a lot in his letters. This seemingly self-deprecating language. 1 Corinthians, in that letter, in chapter 15, verse 9, he said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
In one of his last letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He says, I'm the worst sinner in 1 Timothy. He says, I'm the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then here in verse 8, he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. He says, out of all the Christians, I am the very least. The literal translation of that is he considered himself to be the meanest member of the holy people. The meanest member of the holy people. It was true. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, overseeing their imprisonment and execution before becoming a Christian himself. When you read these verses, you're not to think that Paul had poor self-esteem. What Paul needed was some self-positivity. What Paul needed was to hear what a great person he was and how he could actualize, realize his true potential. Paul was a guy who needed to think high thoughts of himself. You read this and hear Paul is saying he's the worst Christian. I assume he's not lying when he says that. He really believes that. He really saw himself as beneath every other Christian. Sounds like a very low view of himself. And so he must be a discouraged man. Low self-esteem. Thinking lowly of yourself equals discouragement. Equals depression. Equals despair. But it's really weird because when you read Paul's letters, you find that there's no one that has more joy than he has. So... He, he had this low view of himself, and yet he had more joy than anyone else. So maybe you can think of yourself the way Paul thought of himself and still be happy and still have joy and still be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude and live for the glory of God and for the good of others. Paul did not have self-esteem issues. Paul had a right and sober view of himself. And he had a right and sober view of himself because he understood what God's word said about him. He understood what God said about him. And he understood who he had been historically. Do you understand what God's word has to say about you? And do you understand what you have done to sin against God and to sin against others? If you do, it's very difficult to be proud. It's very difficult to be arrogant. You have to ignore all of that. You have to push away all of that. I understand that it's a, a fearful thing 
to think about yourself as a sinner that should be condemned to die before God. I understand that it's a difficult thing to face the reality of how you've hurt people. How you've hurt others and how you've hurt a God who has been nothing but good to you. I understand how difficult it is to face those things. But if you don't own your sin, and if you don't face the reality of who you are apart from Christ, then you'll never be happy. And you'll never have true joy. Because you'll never know how great the love of God is for you. You'll never know how great his grace is toward you if you don't understand the gap that he has bridged, if you don't understand the sin that he has paid for, if you don't understand the extent to which he has gone to adopt you into his family. And if you think that all of that, that Christ has done, is just an echo of how good you are and how great you are, then you will miss the depth of his love for you. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So no, it was good for Paul to reflect on who he was before Christ because it led to greater appreciation. It led to greater gratitude. It led to more glory for God, more worship for God. And then what does Paul say that God sent him to do, specifically in verses 8 through 9? God sent him to preach and to bring to light. First, he says to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This had been a great privilege and honor for Paul that God would send him to preach to the Ephesians the unsearchable riches of Christ. I really understand what Paul is talking about. I've been a pastor for over 22 years. And as you know, I'm not going to be a pastor for much longer. And while there have been many things that I've felt a privilege and an honor as a pastor, nothing has been a greater privilege than week in and week out preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are two things that I will deeply miss. One, and I hope this is obvious, all of you. And second, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. What an honor and a privilege this had been for Paul. That God would commission him to do that. He puts it another way, to bring to light 
for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Paul was, he was known as the minister to the Gentiles. He was the apostle, not the only apostle, but he was the apostle primarily charged to take the gospel to those outside the nation of Israel. What a calling that he had. Here's the purpose of Paul's ministry, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now take a second to think about that. That is a fascinating purpose. One that I know I don't think about very much. Through our salvation, we're part of the church, Christians. Through our salvation, the wisdom of God is on display for the angels. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Other scriptures talk about this. It's profound. Angels are an unseen audience watching and marveling at God's plan. 1 Corinthians 4.9 for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And so now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this, all this, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is Paul's tangent. Paul was a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. God had revealed a great mystery to him, and God had entrusted a great ministry to him. And as he sits in that jail, this encourages him. It gets him... Out of bed in the morning, it keeps his heart full. And he thinks it should do the same thing for the Ephesians. Verse 13. So, in light of what I've just said, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul says about his suffering, doesn't he? Paul says about his suffering, about his imprisonment, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. 
Paul says about his imprisonment, which was causing the Ephesians understandable heartache. Hey, you know, I'm exactly, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm exactly where I need to be. As a faithful Christian, he could say, I'm exactly where I want to be. Because I want to be where I need to be. I want to be where God wants me to be. And so here I am. Exactly where I should be. So his message to them is, do not lose heart. Do not be discouraged. Peter O'Brien wrote, Paul has written about the eternal purposes of God, the place of his Gentile readers within the divine plan, as well as his own role in relation to it. God has appointed him to enlighten them about the mystery, and as a result, he undergoes suffering for them. In view of so momentous a task given to him in his calling, they are entreated not to become disheartened at his sufferings, which he undergoes on their behalf. So he writes before he gets back into his prayer, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I'm not sure I understand the last part of verse 13. I thought, I read, I prayed, which is your glory? The suffering that is Paul's is the glory of his readers. His suffering is their glory. That's the structure of what Paul says. I don't think that means that this glory of Paul's suffering belongs to them, but it is for them. It is their glory. This glory that radiates out from Paul's suffering, this beauty of his suffering for Christ. It doesn't belong to the Ephesians. It's not theirs in that sense, but it is for them, I think, for them to marvel at. It's what glory is for, to marvel at and to rejoice in, to praise God for. In conclusion, what causes you to lose heart in your Christian life? I hope if I went to prison, it would cause you to lose heart. Someone close to you goes to prison like Paul did, you'd lose heart. Someone you love suffers. You'd lose heart, at least be tempted to. You suffer. You lose heart. 
On February 15, 1554, John Rogers was the first martyr who was killed by Queen Mary. He was burned at the stake. His wife and his ten children came to watch. A few days before his death, he wrote a long poem to his children. I'd encourage you to find that poem. It's easy to find. A few days before he was killed for his preaching of the gospel, before his family, he wrote a, a long poem to his children. And let me just read you the first three stanzas. I think he says some things that are so similar to what Paul says that I suspect he was reading Paul's words. Give ear, my children, to my word, whom God hath dearly bought. Lay up his laws within your heart and print them in your thought. I leave you here a little book for you to look upon, that you may see your father's face when he is dead and gone. Who, for the hope of heavenly things, while he did here remain, gave over all his golden years to prison and to pain. Isn't that what Paul did? Didn't he, out of his hope of heavenly things, out of his love for God, when he needed to, he gave over all his golden years to prison, and to pain. Well, John Rogers, just like the Apostle Paul, he knew that he was exactly where he was supposed to be. And I don't know what kind of comfort and encouragement you need when you're going to be burned at a stake for your faith in front of your family but I know it's almost incomprehensible. I mean, what secures you in the face of that? What positions you so that you could write something like this to your family? He knew that he was exactly where he needed to be. And he was exactly where he wanted to be. When you read the rest of his poem, when you read the rest of what he wrote, it is very clear that he wrote in hopes that his children and wife would not lose heart. Same reason Paul writes, so do you know the courage that comes from knowing you are exactly where God wants you to be? How easy is it for you when interruptions or distractions or difficulties or even tragedies come to lose your perspective? How easy is that? It's very easy for me. Are you able to pause? what Paul does here. 
I was going to say this, but I got to say this right now. That's what he does. Are you able to pause and to consider that God has revealed himself to you? God did not have to reveal himself to you. Some of you can remember when he hadn't revealed himself to you. And then God revealed himself to you. In the very same kind of way that Paul thinks about God revealing himself to him. Are you able to pause and to consider that God has also commissioned you? He hasn't given you the same exact mission he gave to Paul, but he has commissioned you to live for God's glory. He has commissioned you to spread the gospel. He has commissioned you to live for the good of others. And that no matter what happens, as you live faithfully for Christ, no matter what happens, you are where God means for you to be. And so are you helped by texts like we've read this morning? I hope you are. And I hope it has prepared you also to take the Lord's Supper together. It should. Everything we've been studying in this letter from Paul that he has made us one. He's adopted us into his family and he has made us one. He's united us to one another. He's united us to himself. And so now here we are as a family. And so as a family, as a local church, we take the Lord's Supper together because we're remembering and we're celebrating what Christ has done. It was first in a room with his disciples. And we read about this in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table. The apostles were with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you're visiting with us today, you're welcome to take communion with us. If you're a baptized believer, if you've turned from your sin and you've placed your faith in Christ, committed yourself to him, to his people, so you're committed to this local church or maybe another that preaches the same gospel that you've heard here today. We have leaders up front. We'd like you to come forward so that we can serve you and give you the emblems, the bread and the juice. And then if you'd return to your seat and then wait so that we can remember together, so that we can symbolize this together, display this together as a family. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for what you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. God, we are sure that it helped many of the Ephesians to not lose heart, that their hearts were filled, and that they were encouraged. We thank you for that. And God, we pray that you would use that word in our hearts today, that when we are tempted to lose heart, maybe even specifically over the sufferings of those Christians that we love, God, that we would remember when tragedy comes our way or comes another's way, that, God, your will is being done. And all things are for your glory and for our good. And so our hearts are filled with peace. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.